Connecting Coaches Cognition. Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. back to another episode of C3. I'm Courtney Groskin and I'm here with Violet Christensen. Violet, what are your goals for 2024? I can't believe it's the new year. It is blowing my mind that we are already 2024. I feel like 2023 just like slid through my fingertips. Um, People always tell you like the older you get, the faster time goes. And I think it's exponentially faster when you have with each child, like it just seems to go faster and faster. And Um, So for me, I think it's probably um, echoing goals of the past, but trying to make sure that I'm present with my girls and that we're really intentional about setting time aside and working on the things that they're really um, delving into as far as interests. Um, My my kiddos are just really into making and building and engineering right now and some robotics. And so we try to set some time aside for building each, um, each week and also just meeting some of their goals, like learning, you know, at more swim lessons and being able to dive into more dance. And um, honestly, my husband and I have been just doing a little forward planning and we have some some big house projects we've been putting off that we're going to try to rock out in the springtime to get done. Nice. And yeah, right. Like finally check some of those things off the list. And we're also trying to find a time to do a little getaway and maybe explore a new place. And um, the girls are voting for the beach, which I'm always down for. Yeah, I always say that's the one thing Colorado is lacking is like the beach and the ocean kind of feel. I know lakes are great, but there's just different feel about the beach and the ocean. 100%. And it's just that therapeutic space. It's It really recharges my battery every time we go to the beach. And it's been um, been a couple of years since we could do a super big trip. And so I think um, we are just really in that um, hyperspeed of planning it and trying to figure out all the nuances and details and be able to surprise the girls with some some adventures while we're there. So I mean, I think I know those are all personal goals, but just some of that finding balance. We always have tons of work goals and we can dive into those later, but just focusing on making sure that uh, the personal space is also having some intentional goals too. Definitely. It's always important to grow yourself personally and not just professionally. Exactly. In all directions. So tell me, what are your goals then, Courtney? What are you looking forward to? I mean, with the winter really like settling in in January here, I really want to pick up a new like indoor hobby. Um, you know, I do so much outdoor like gardening and home projects and things, but like I want to find something I can do on these like cold nights. So I'm kind of researching that. Like, do I want to get back into quilting? Do I want to go for painting? Like, I'm not sure. But so like at least exploring something um, in January here uh, that I can tinker with at home without it being like this massive, like I'm going to redo a bedroom or feel the popcorn ceilings in my house because been there, done that, don't have that <laughs> to do. Um, so just finding those small ways to disconnect at night and just kind of unwind without it being just like the trashy TV kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. A, a real decompression activity. You know, we could we could send Stella over. She knows how to crochet. She's learned from my mom, who's the queen of the quilters. So, you know, she could come over and hang with you. I have tried and she may be the like, thing I'm missing is having a small child teaching me, but my brain and my fingers just do not align. Like I really struggle. I've tried to knit. I've tried to crochet. The sewing machine's a whole nother level. I've got that down, but the fine, uh, 
work with a tool is kind of hard for me. That, that fine motor. I know. I, I almost wonder if we're better at those things when we are so young. I remember crocheting an entire Afghan when I was in third grade. And now I watch my children go at it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you're so much better at me, better at that than me. Your memory just holds it better, I think. I don't know. My aunt tried to teach me how to knit at like eight years old. And my grandmother used to joke but that I was making her funeral shroud because it was no. going to take me so long to finish. So like, and I never did finish it, but she didn't wait for that to happen. Well, that was not a positive presupposition. So it's kind of depressing. <laughs> that was the joke though. Like she's never going to finish this. So then I'll live forever. Well, maybe it's time to try something completely new and different then, I guess. That's what I'm thinking. So yeah, I want to find a new hobby, continue to take time for myself and uh, just really be able to disconnect at night. That's awesome. It sounds like we're both working towards some passion time and being able to work towards those passions. Definitely. Today, we're so fortunate to have two amazing guests with us today. We have Dr. Paul Bloomberg, who is one of the nation's most sought after school improvement coaches. He is the best-selling author, coach, organizer, public education cheerleader, CEO, publisher, husband, parent, and friend. Paul has led multiple successful school turnaround efforts and partners with schools and districts globally with a focus on advancing learner agency through collaborative inquiry. Paul is the co-author of the best-selling book, Leading Impact Teams. We also have Isaac Wells. Isaac is the director of teaching and learning with the Core Collaborative. Prior to his work at the Core Collaborative, he worked as a school improvement specialist and instructional coach for Henderson County Public Schools in North Carolina. Welcome, Paul and Isaac. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here today and to be able to dive into your new book. Um, we are just thrilled to have you back in the house, Paul, and also to have you joining us, Isaac. Glad to be here. Thank you. Woohoo! Well, we'll dive right in. We want to hear all of your fantastic insights and be able to divulge some wonderful insights to our listeners. So can you start by just telling us what the inspiration was behind the new book of Leading Impact Teams, Building a Culture of Efficacy and Agency, the second edition? Yeah, I think uh, number one, I want to give a shout out to my co-author, Barb, who is sick with a knee, not sick, but is recovering from knee surgery. So she couldn't be here, but I'm really excited that Isaac, Katie, and Michael were also co-authors on this new book. But I think the biggest inspiration is since 2016, we've learned a lot. And I think that we wanted to get that information out because we recognized that the first book um, didn't give as much explicit how as we wanted. And I think there were just some things that we learned through doing the work that I think were really important. And I think over the course of the pandemic and supporting schools after the pandemic and where we're at now, I think equity became, you know, up front and center really important. And, and it's not like it wasn't before, but I don't think we had the capacity to speak about it. And the way that we did in this book. And so the whole book is really infused with culturally responsive, sustaining education practices that are asset based, where we look at the formative assessment process, self assessment, peer assessment, goal setting through the lens of culture. And I think that that was really important, knowing that we all have different cultures and we're all coming together in a classroom. And we can honor the cultures of the different people that live in our learning spaces, or we can deny them and just assimilate and be one. 
And I think that we all know that it's better that if we honor everyone's cultural background, we actually make more connections and we learn more. And I think that was one big inspiration. And I think the other one is we began using the framework with all sorts of teams, with English Learner Advisory Councils, with PTAs, with district office teams. So we made a more concerted effort to look at how the EAA framework and a lot of the work around collaborative inquiry could be used in all different sorts of settings. And then the last piece is we really honed in on the idea of inquiry and what inquiry is and what it isn't. And if we want to extend more agency to teachers, and if we want them to have more decision-making power, and if we want to have our kids have to have agency, then our teachers have to have agency too. And so I think there's a more, not I think, there is a more clear focus on how to advance teacher influence and how to give them more agency underneath the, the school goals, you know, and, and while still meeting the school goal, goals, but offering teachers a lot more flexibility. So I think those are the big, big reasons. I really appreciate the perspective of having the time to walk out a book like this and live it and realize like, okay, we need to make some tweaks and adjustments because we've changed as a system in education and how can we grow and get better from that? Yeah, yeah. I think the idea of agency too was knowing that we want learners to be able to make decisions for their own life that are good for them while also contributing to others. Like it doesn't, it's not a competition. Like there's enough for everyone and we don't have to be successful at the expense of another person. And I think that, that that thread is woven through the whole book is once we build expertise, if we're a teacher, if we're a student or a principal, it's our job to contribute that expertise back to people that might not have it and to teach them too. So this idea of contribution is living throughout the whole book over and over and over. How are we going to contribute back to, the, to where we, you know, to how we learned? So anyway, Isaac, what do you think? All that. Yeah. And I think uh, part of it is at the core collaborative, we practice what we teach. So we're always learning and reflecting. And as Paul was just saying, we're taking that input from so many different sources, from all the students, teachers, principals, superintendents that we have the pleasure to work with uh, and learning as we go and learning from this massive learning network that we've built over time. Yeah, it's a true boots on the ground approach versus this like pie in the sky theory idea. These are practical and real things that we're implementing in schools. Yeah, we're real. I know the book emphasizes the pivotal role of efficacy in propelling teams towards continuous improvement. Can you elaborate on how a belief in one's ability to reach goals contributes to a, building a culture of efficacy and agency within a school? Of course, that belief is central to everything. So we all know that saying uh, the definition of insanity is, you know, trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. When we put that in the context of the classroom, uh, if you've been trying really hard and failing, <laughs> it, it takes away from your efficacy, that sense that you have what it takes. You have that capacity to learn this new thing, develop this new skill. If you've been successful, then it builds on to that sense of efficacy. Uh, and 
we find, you know, from the research that there's really four sources of that efficacy. And the first is safety. Do you feel physically and psychologically safe? And a huge piece of that is, are you willing to take risks? And Paul really, I think, got to this with his introduction to say, like, we're willing to take some risks. And so when you put something out in the world and you try it, you learn from both the successes and the failures. So we need safety to get started. Uh, if we're going to try something that's really challenging, it's very helpful to have models of success. What does it look like when someone else has done this well? You know, what are different ways that are possible to do this well? And then that kind of reveals to a success criteria we can work through. So if we have those pieces, now we're ready to really start making some attempts. And then we need feedback from as many sources as possible. Feedback from myself as I measure what I can do now against what I could do before, against where am I headed with this. As we get feedback from my peer group, hey, I noticed (laughs) you're trying to do this. Here's a couple of things you did really well. Have you thought about trying this other thing? That might help you. And of course, in a classroom, you know, feedback from the teachers and the the other adults that you interact with. Uh, And when we have those sources, it really helps us not only to have mastery moments, but to recognize those. Because a mastery moment where you celebrate your success along the way doesn't have the same impact if you don't take time to identify it and, you know, recognize, well, what got me here? And that's a huge piece that we play uh, in the lives of of our students' efficacy, but also in ours as teachers. Because to your question, we're not just building a sense of efficacy with students, it's with every learner, whether you're the superintendent running a massive district uh, or you're the pre-K student who just walked in for your first day. Uh, and Paul, I think, spoke really eloquently about the role of agency in anything we take on in lives. And so that efficacy, I believe I can do it, uh, is a component in agency, which is the opportunity uh, and the ability to take control of your own life, to make some decisions that that help yourself and help others. Uh, and a, a huge piece of the book really gets to collective teacher efficacy. And so when we look at that, Ginny Donahue has done a lot to kind of unpack well, what what builds this collective teacher efficacy. You know, things like how well do I understand what the other teachers in my school are doing? Uh, what kind of voice do I have? Like Paul mentioned this right at the beginning. You know, how am I able to influence what's happening in my own school? Uh, and this is uh, an area where Paul has some real strength to let him jump in. Yeah, I think, do that. Yeah, when you look at Donahue's work, Rachel L's work, and Hattie's work, you know, the study that was kind of spawned from one of her first articles is that teachers have influence and agency over their classrooms and they get to, they have decision making power. And that means that they have power over their inquiry that they're doing with other teachers. Like we all want to get better at self assessment this year together because we know if our kids get good at this, they'll be able to be a little bit more independent. And then like, I think this idea of goal consensus, our teachers gathering with the principal and determining the school goals with or the school goes created by the district or the school goes created in an office and then we're just bringing everyone together to bless them? Or are we actually looking at the data collaboratively together, brainstorming what our goals could be as teachers and creating those goals collectively? I think that's really important. And then having cohesion, like knowing like where we're going to be going three years from now, right? So in our schools, we typically create three-year plans 
about like, where do we want to be in three years? And what would phase one look like? Not year one, phase one. What would success look like in phase one? What would phase two look like? And so we're building that plan alongside of educators because they're the ones that have to execute it. So the people that are closest to the work should be creating the plan as far as we're concerned. A lot of those plans should not be created from someone else that's outside of the school. And the more that we do school reform work and school transformation work, there's not one school that we've had that have transformed moving 20, 30 percentage points that haven't had agency over their own learning at the school. And I think the other piece would be, are your interventions really quality? Because if those interventions aren't quality and we're sending kids to those interventions and the teachers don't believe in those interventions, then it has a detrimental effect on the overall efficacy of the teachers. And then lastly, coming from Daly's work, Dr. Daly, he looks at the collective efficacy of schools that have been labeled program improvement. And it's really clear that when you get that label of needs and improvement, it automatically decreases the efficacy of every single human that started in the school because now we're being labeled just like we don't like being labeled individually. Now a whole system is labeled underperforming. And so the people in the system start to believe it. Right. So I think we, we move that from self-efficacy to collective efficacy with the help of Rachel Eels, Jenny Donahue, Alan Daly, and John Addy, <laughs> and hopefully us and you. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate how you bring the efficacy through the entire system as well, the agency as being those, those really heart lines and mind lines in order to be able to feel safe, in order to be able to raise that across the board. It's just, you all illuminate that so well. So thank you. Very welcome. It's a perk time we really talked about it. So thanks for asking the question. <laughs> well, you know, we, we try to ask good questions around yeah, here. Yeah, they're really good questions. Well, here's the next one for you. So take this one and, and give us some more amazing insights is we know the concept of reimagining PLCs and anchoring that collaborative inquiry with design thinking is like, it's, it's super intriguing to us. Could you share a couple of those specific examples or some insights into how this approach enhances that effectiveness of professional learning communities and also how it fosters the innovation and creativity that we're looking for. Yeah, so it came with a lot of failure. I'm just going to be really, like, I, I more than Barb was bound and determined to figure out how design thinking could be used with collaborative inquiry. And so I got to tell you, I failed at it in Chicago. I failed at it. And I think Missouri, I think I failed at it. I can't even tell you how many times I started and stopped to figure it out, but I don't even know what happened where one day it kind of came to me. And I think it came to me because of the equity work we were doing. And the first stage of the design thinking process is your, it's the empathy stage. Right. And the more I started thinking of it, and at the, at the time I was on the board of the National Parent Union, and it's a parent union devoted to the parents that of the most marginalized kids. So parents who've been incarcerated, LGBTQ parents, single parents, parents of color. And I started to realize that as a system, we weren't really empathizing much with the families 
that many of the things that they were going through were completely out of the control of, of them because of the color of their skin, because of food insecurity, because of learning a second language, because of leaving a war-torn country and having to come here. And they were actually being punished for those things in our system because, you know, the system wasn't really being empathetic to what they'd gone through. And so I think what always drew me to design thinking is that the first stage is empathizing with your client, which would be your students or your families, and also empathizing with teachers because they're the ones that have to execute the work. And so I think through the help of a lot of other people, we started doing a lot more empathetic interviews at the beginning of the stages. And then we started to be better able to understand the root cause of the problem because we were talking to the people that the problem mostly impacted. We weren't talking to other people that were impacted by the problem. We were going directly to the source. And because we went directly to the source and we started to understand what they valued, and what they thought needed to happen, and we took that information into account deeply as we determined our inquiry focus, it changed everything. Because now social-emotional learning went from here to here, not because we had to from the state level, because the parents valued it, right? <laughs> because the parents wanted their kids not to be ashamed when they did well when they didn't do well on a test and they didn't want their kids to be so insecure about going to school because they were nervous about how they might perform. And so I think things started to change rapidly when we went right to the people that were most impacted by the problem and spent a good deal of time talking to them and gathering evidence before we determined our inquiry focus. And that evidence, believe it or not, became even more important than the hard data that we typically use in schools. So I think that is the biggest reason. And I think we've gotten better and better and better. And at the secondary level, at, in the high school level, to be quite honest, that's the, it's the way we broke through because we always struggled with impact teams or any PLC process at the secondary high school level. But as soon as we had teachers go to the source and talk to the kids and set them up with, interview questions that would give them good information, all of a sudden high school teachers wanted to change their practice because they recognized that what they might be doing wasn't really serving the students in front of them because at the end of the day, teachers want to serve our kids. Like that's, that's kind of born into the profession. So I think it really supported our secondary schools to taking them to another level. It always comes back to the coaching core, being a good listener, being able to paraphrase back and really articulate where are we going and what are we doing and how are we feeling in this moment? So I love you bringing that to the forefront. Yeah, I think that's the biggest reason because the rest of the components of design thinking are pretty similar to a lot of inquiry work, but that empathy stage and then the prototyping phase, knowing that what we're going to do immediately is it, it's not going to be our best. And so it requires prototyping. If we're Practicing self-assessment in the very beginning, a lot of people don't know how to do it very well. So it requires this idea of prototyping that we're going to come back to it over and over. And that's just a part of the stage. And I think that makes people feel very comfortable because there's no need to be perfect in the very beginning because there is no such thing.
So I think those would be the two things, right, Isaac? I don't think, mm-hmm. I think that that kind of sums it up. Yeah, well, you nailed it. It yeah. brings all the voices to the table. Design thinking naturally does that, even if, even if they're not speaking up, if they're writing it, putting, I mean, however you create that system, I mean, mm-hmm. everyone's voice is heard and it's going to bring the efficacy Isaac's talking about more up. So we're safer. We're all being able to collaborate together. Yeah. Anthony Ledico, he was the executive superintendent for the New York City Department of Ed. So 1.5 million students. And him and I got to be really friend, good friends. And over the pandemic, they were doing surveys and 30% or 40% of the parents would answer the survey. And he's probably one of the people that said, it's not good enough because the 60% of the people that aren't doing the survey are who we need to do the survey. So why are we are not going to beauty parlors and going to these places where these people actually live and work and getting that information so we can make better educated decisions about our families that are most in need because typically their voices are typically left out. So, I mean, I owe a lot to Anthony for saying that one day in a meeting and I'm like, he's right. And it was also missing out, missing in the PLC process. Mm-hmm. It's like the pinnacle of um, empowering our parents. You know, give them a seat and make it accessible to them. And they hold a lot of the information and the knowledge that we need to propel their students forward. If it's on their terms, right? If we honor their culture and we honor the way that they see education and we don't make it about what we need, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Right. What do you need us to do better for you? That's a really different conversation, Courtney. So I appreciate that you said that. Yeah. The book stresses the importance of recognizing and value a learner's cultural strengths as indispensable sources of knowledge. Can you provide some examples of how this asset-based cultural lens enhances formative assessment practices and contributes to a more inclusive and effective learning environment? I'm going to start this one because I'm going to talk about my two adopted sons. One in particular, Alex, who just found out he's West African not too long ago. Our whole life, we thought he was Hispanic. So he's kind of going through an identity crisis of some sort. And I get it. But I think it became clear when he was in high school, when we were actually made the decision to launch the core collaborative, where... Alex was a surfer and every single day I could see this unbelievable patient person wait for wait. And I also saw this person who wasn't really competitive, Alex, always give the wave to somebody else. And, and, and then when I would go to school for some reason, those were not the ways that teachers would describe Alex, but I knew that he could problem solve. Although he didn't do well in math because I saw him problem solve in surfing constantly. And so it became like, what if teachers would recognize that in kids' personal lives and in their cultural and their homes and in their families, they probably have learned all of these things and it might not be called the same thing. But what are we doing where we're not acknowledging the cultural strengths that kids already have? And we make these assumptions that they're not problem solvers, that they're not patient, that they can't share because of this artificial environment of school that in secondary is very much like prisons 
it's not really much like a learning environment because we all heard in, we all sit in rows and we listen to the teacher lecture for 30 to 45 minutes. And it's not really what I would call good learning. It's more like a factory. But we don't really even acknowledge that the student has all these strengths and these strengths they've grown outside of school. And many of us don't even know them. So I think from a practical example, like just seeing it happen with my own two sons almost every day, that there was a lack of understanding of the strengths of who we sent to school and that those strengths could be used as a source of knowledge to build from, right? If they, if they knew that he was patient, if they knew that he was a surfer, if they knew that he was a problem solver, they could help him make connections into math where you had to do that in math class. You hear where I'm going? So I think for me, that's why the asset-based approach is a lot. And I think, Isaac, I think you're dealing with the same sort of things too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, we deal with these same things in any situation we put ourselves into. And so you have this cultural background, whether we acknowledge it or not. So why not acknowledge it, bring it out? And then anytime you engage in the formative assessment process, that is a partnership. It's something you're doing together with others. And so it gives you an opportunity to understand yourself better, to understand those around you. And I think what Paul is alluding to uh, is my, my daughter is a, a second grader, very bright, uh, amazing vocabulary, loves reading, writing, math, everything, and yet has really struggled in some areas. Uh, and we, you know, we're, we're working on that, but we've noticed that she can be very different in those different situations. And we're grateful uh, beyond belief this year that she has a teacher who really has taken the time and made the space to see her for who she is, and she's thriving. So we're, we're very excited about where she's headed. Uh, and it's and it, because of what you just said, she made that environment uh, at one where she feels included and belongs and is able to share who she is fully while she's there. And recognizing that our kids, our teachers, our principals, they're already whole. They're not yeah. broken. They're already whole. So we have to speak about them as whole people that aren't broken. Like the first thing I go to a school that has 10% proficiency is that none of you here are broken. Our system might be broken, but no one in the room is. You're all totally whole. You're beautiful individuals, and it's our job to figure out what are our strengths so we can build upon them instead of taking every minute that we can to look at our deficits, because the more that we look at our deficits, the more that we find. Absolutely. And at the core, aren't we all just wanting acceptance and we, we want to be efficacious and, and, and we're all have our our inner child inside of us that still wants that, right? And so I love that you're speaking to that and really getting to know the whole child. And I hope this is the best year yet for your daughter. And she's she rocks right into third grade. She's going to. Yeah. I believe it. And when they feel accepted and when they are have that sense of peace within, it's unbelievable what can come out of that. It's, I think we all had some of those teachers growing up that we connected with and we would do anything for and we would we would pie in the sky as far as they would take us. And then we had other teachers that maybe we didn't vibe with as much or ha felt as accepted with. And therefore, we recluse, right? 
I don't know about you guys, but don't you think like where you learn the most as a teacher is when you're trying to figure out how to help a student that's struggling? I feel like for me, those students have given me the greatest gifts that I could ever receive. So to me, when I have a student that I can't figure out, I'm like, gosh, look at all the gifts that I'm going to get right now over the next year or so. Like I look at it as like, oh my goodness, I'm going to learn more about myself through this experience, I'm going to learn more about how to help so many more kids through this experience. So to me, it's just like a puzzle to try to figure out. And what are all the gifts that you're going to gain from figuring out that puzzle? You it know? really pushes you to stretch and grow because you have to change the way you're looking at that. Story. Yeah. 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 So I embrace those children, right? And embrace those teachers because those are the places where we learn the most. And I'm sure our listeners right now are naming those kiddos in their mind. Like I'm, I'm naming them as we're sitting here in a head bobbing and nodding together of, oh yeah, I remember this lesson from this student. I remember that, cha that challenge with this child that we had to break through in this way. I mean, so I appreciate you bringing that to the forefront as well. We know within the book, one of the goals that's highlighted is to shape self-empowered learners who are both that intellectually, um, both intellectually adept and also socially conscious. How does the impact team model contribute to this goal more? If you can just give us a few more little nuggets in there behind and also what strategies are recommended for achieving it. Yeah, that's a great segue from what we've just been talking about. Uh, you know, we already kind of mentioned that learning really is a partnership. Learning happens socially before it happens academically. And we've evolved in a way where we learn uh, from each other. And we have certain people who are storytellers or certain people. Uh, who who carry on these different types of, you know, physical knowledge, whether it's how to make a net <laughs> or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and so learning traditionally for humans has happened in the context of our society. And so with that in mind, you can't take that away from it. And so I think sometimes there's a worry, and we're seeing this in some legislation in, in states at the time, that if we split the focus of learning into academic and social and emotional, we may weaken the academic learning. But we know from our own experiences and the research bears this out too, that the opposite is true. When we focus on each of those things, they strengthen each other. And so if you're not taking care of socially and emotionally, and you're not aware of yourself in those ways and aware of others, uh, your academics can struggle. And if your academics are very strong, but you, you don't have opportunities to develop those social skills, uh, that comes away from it. So that's kind of at the heart of the model is to develop, as you've said, self-empowered learners. And that's another way of thinking about agency. Students who are able to approach the world they live in with the belief that they can have an impact on their own lives and the lives of others with the power of spirit to take chances and try that. And then with the set of skills and the deep understanding of concepts necessary to do it, it doesn't matter. I don't mean to say it doesn't matter, but if you have a great belief in yourself, but you don't have the skills it takes to read, you're not going to be able to read. Yeah. Uh, so we have to have kind of all those pieces. Yeah. Jump in, Paul. I also think like Zaretta Hammond, I think it was over the pandemic. She made a post on Facebook mm -hmm. and she said, if we really are equity centered, we'll teach kids how to learn how to learn. And I was like, you know, you're right. And so like, I think the impact team model from the very onset, you guys know, because I think we even did an interview way back in 2016 about it. It was always about 
teaching kids those learning to learn skills. But at that point, it, was, it wasn't really called that. But I think when you're teaching kids skills that they can use in their own life, like self-assessment, peer assessment, giving feedback to others, like using an exemplar by yourself, you know, to, to figure out how to do things by trying to find an example and figure it out by looking at the example, by um, learning how to summarize your learning, learning how to outline all those things that you can do to enhance your own learning. Impact Teams has always been about that. So it's about how do we teach these learning to learn skills so when kids leave the care of our school, they can use these skills in any facet of their life. And I think in the book, we also put a lot of emphasis on the transfer of learning and looking at the learning process through the lens of surface, deep, and transfer because our good friend, Michael McDowell, who also is in our network around PBL, so I think the, the work has broadened a lot to include evidence that we're gathering from schools engaged in PBL and what evidence would they look at at the surface deep and transfer level to know the kids are going in the right direction. So I think there's more emphasis on the learning to learn skills throughout the book and knowing that that is also going to be an equity stabilizer or equalizer, or it could be, it has the potential to be. And as kids develop those skills and strategies Paul was just talking about and they reflect on how they've learned them and how they've used them, that only strengthens their learner identity, that understanding themselves as learners, as people who are capable of learning, and as people who learn well when they do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and the better you understand yourself, the better you're able to understand others. And so one of the things when I first met Paul 10 years ago or so, it <laughs> seems like a lot longer than that. One of the things he brought to my school at the time was this idea of the co-construction of success criteria, which is such a simple thing, but it has a massive impact on how you think about learning. Because as Paul said, you you look at some examples, some non-examples, you decide together from 30, 35 different perspectives, what makes this one a good example? What makes this one something that could be improved a little bit? And so... While you're getting to know yourself, you're getting to know others, but then you're coming to a shared understanding. This is excellence. This is what we're driving for. Uh, and through that process, you become socially aware of those around you and how they may learn differently or how they may see things differently or what they have that they can bring to the conversation or, or give to you to challenge you or to push you ahead. The concept reminds me so much of the reading rope. Like you can't separate the individual strands here. You know, it's one not together. And that's what, you know, makes a strong student. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Learning your best way to learn. It's, it's, it's like the metacognition of education, thinking about our thinking and thinking about how we do our thinking, how we best are successful in our thinking, which is amazing. Oh, you guys are just full of so much great information today. I just feel like I know we've been here nodding this whole time, but I think our listeners driving in their car or running on the treadmill, they're they're nodding right along with us here in, in elapsed time. But we want to give you at least one more opportunity to share. Is there anything else that you would like to share? And also tell us where can we follow you? Where can we connect with you? How can they become part of your network? Yeah, so for me, like this, this book wasn't written just by... Me, Barb, Isaac, Katie, and Michael. If you look in the front of the book, I think there's over 30 schools that contributed to it. So 
And there's even more schools that make contributions from in the first one. So like that alone, just knowing that this is all of ours and like it wouldn't be a book with all of their contributions and and just giving a, a shout out to every single school and teacher and principal and parent that agreed to contribute to the lights went off on you. They agreed to, they agreed to contribute to the book. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that the book was written by lots and lots of people. And I, and I, and I want everyone to know that, that this book isn't just ours. It's all of ours. Collective efficacy in book form. Yes. Yeah. In book form, as much as we could make it. I think that's a big thing for you, for me, Isaac. I don't know about for you. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it, that we're all in this together uh, and we're, we're continuing to learn together. And we know that that's where our strength comes from. The more perspectives we bring together, the more people we have trying things, taking risks, having successes, having failures, but then being open, honest and vulnerable enough to share those so we can reflect on them together. Uh, I've learned so much in any group I've gotten to be a part of, but being part of the core collaborative learning network, it just expanded my reach at such a ridiculous extent uh, that I just, I have confidence kind of like what LinkedIn was developed for a long time ago was that if you have a need or a problem or a puzzle, I've got somebody I can reach out to. And that's really kind of what we're all about. And that brings us right back to that efficacy and agency, efficacy, the belief that with the people around me, uh, I can have a positive impact on learning and then agency that power and opportunity to make decisions that impact my learning and my life and others. Uh, and you asked for it, so we'll say it, but you can find us at thecorecollaborative.com and we're on all social media as either the Social Core or the Core Collaborative. Um, we would love to connect because we there's just so many ways to keep in touch and for us all to make each other a little bit better. We also have a Facebook impact team group. Yeah. If you just go to Facebook and search for leading impact teams, I think we have about 800, a thousand people in there, but we would love for people to join because that's where we're kind of sharing best practice. And I think Mother Teresa said this, but I think when we realize that we all really belong to each other, the way we treat each other is very, very different because we're all really connected. And so I think that's what I would like to leave everyone is just realizing that we all really are interconnected. And so the better that we treat each other, the more that we're going to learn together. I think that's a mic drop moment. And we'll end the episode on that note. Thank you so much for coming on today. <laughs> Thank you Thanks so much for having us. This is wonderful. It was awesome. Thank you. We always knew the process of impact teams was important. The new book just brings it to a whole nother level. What gifts might you recognize in your students? How can you help your teachers recognize these gifts? Thanks for listening to another episode of C3. Be sure to follow us on X or Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks for listening. C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?